We're going to consider the impact that sin makes as it sweeps into the society and has its way with us and as it sweeps upon the life of the individual and takes that individual where it is that sin wants to go and where it is that sin wants to lead us. The important question we're going to attempt to answer here is where is sin taking us? Where is sin taking you? Where would sin take the world you live in? And it's not the only question we're asked, but that's the primary one. You know, there are a lot of secular thinkers in our day and age that want to dismiss this notion of sin altogether. They want to dismiss it, but they also are witnessing the reality of the disruptions that are taking place in our community. They recognize that people have consciences. They recognize that people feel shame and people feel guilt. They recognize that people even admittedly do counterproductive things that are somehow not helpful to themselves and helpful to society. And so although they don't want to call these things sins, they have to come up with a term. So usually it's just a mistake in judgment. That's the primary thing. I've made a mistake in judgment. You ever seen some celebrity or some individual who's got drunk and, you know, beat up his his wife or whatever it is, and then it's been caught on camera, and then he's got to go before everybody, and he says, well, that's really not me. I made a mistake in judgment. Well, I'd say it's something more than a mistake in judgment. It's something rather awful. To call it just a mistake in judgment is a picture of desensitized we are to what's taking place here. But, well, leave the language as they would. Give them the language. Mistake in judgment. Whatever you want to call it. Why do humans make such mistakes in judgment? We'll put it this way. Why do humans sin? It's kind of an important question to ask. The answer that the secular man will give us is that it's the result of his animal tendencies getting the best of him. It's the residual influence of his evolution catching up with him. He hasn't entirely got rid of and shed all of the animal instincts within him. And periodically the vestiges of those animal instincts rise up within him and cloud his judgment and cause him to behave in ways that are destructive or not in his best interest and in the best interest of the social order. And so he sins because, you know, the ape in him has somehow got the best of him. And so that's one answer that's given to us. Another answer is that we have unmet needs in our lives that we seek to fulfill, and they're legitimate needs, but we are not wisely applying ourselves to fulfill those needs in appropriate ways. And so when we try to fulfill those needs in inappropriate ways, we trespass against the optimum behavior that's good for ourselves and good for others. Another theory might be that our environment has conditioned us It's not really in us, but it's the environment around us. It's the circumstances around us. It's a lack of a social framework to teach and instruct us. And so because of an environment, we're conditioned to act in ways that are not always good. That's why we make these mistakes in judgment or we sin. And One of the things you'll notice about each one of these views is to them, they add certain solutions. They're almost predictable. If these are all true, then what we really need to do is we just need a better education. We know how to manage these sins in a better way. We need to learn how to breathe a little slower and think things and process things first and, and consider the outcomes and understand what our choices are and make better choices. And if we just learned the right and began to train ourselves in the right way of analysis, analyzing what's taking place and analyzing why we're coming to these conclusions and acting in this way and we can slow life down around us, well, we'll, we'll be able to navigate these things. And we might not be able to cure them altogether, but At least we can manage these things in a better way. Or what we really need to do is be educated on how to create environmental changes in our lives and the lives of other people. If we just kind of somehow manipulate and adjust the society around us so that we can create more equity or whatever it is, 
we'll have less of these things taking place because this is just the influence and this is just the environment that we've created catching up with us. And we have to ask ourselves, by the way, if it's just environment, how it is that such innocent individuals could create such a lousy environment? But they don't usually ask that kind of question. And so we come to the Bible here. The Bible gives us a completely different view of sin altogether. Uh, the Bible gives us an understanding of sin that is entirely different than this idea that it's just simply that's something that's rising within me from some decaying past or past that I'm rising out of, or, and it's not simply just me not knowing how to make good choices or understanding how to get what I need and what I want in a productive way, and, it, and it's not simply me just expressing the poor environmental experiences that I've had and how I've been conditioned in the past. Well, the Bible gives us a different view than that of where sin's starting point is. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 5, verse 12 for a second. Martin Lloyd-Jones takes us to this passage, and he uses this passage as a starting point for us in being able to grasp the nature of sin. Here, Paul writes through the Holy Spirit, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all have sinned. This is actually one of the more controversial passages in Scripture, and there are a lot of different understandings and views of what is exactly meant here, and commentators will dig deeply into it, and we'll have to go and dig into some of the specifics of this passage later on, but we're only in Romans chapter 1 right now, so you'll have to wait a while. But what we see here is that Paul is obviously talking about how it is that sin made its way into the human race, and how that sin spread through the sin of Adam to all of us, Back way back in the Garden of Eden. How did sin come and it was brought into reality? What Lloyd-Jones wants us to do to help us understand this, he, he wants us to see one word here. It's the word I want to point you to as well. It's the word entered. It says sin entered. And this entrance may be seen because it wasn't welcomed. It, wasn't some, it, was, it was seen something as an invasion because of what it produced, what it brought about. It, we might see it as sin invaded the world of humanity when Adam sinned. And here's the point. Sin is something more than the vestiges of an evolving human nature. It's not something that's just percolating from some distant past. It's a principle that existed outside of human existence and that came and entered into the human world. Sin is almost in this passage in which Paul is speaking here. Sin is almost personified by Paul. Think of it as a potent force or an evil power or an invading presence. And if you do, you may begin to understand what the scripture is teaching us and what Paul is reasoning before us in understanding sin. Sin is this force, this invading principle, because it's, it was introduced by the power of Satan himself. And as such, the principle that's constantly pressed upon us as we enter into sin that's somehow cooperating and energizing the sinful acts that we conduct is Satan himself. James actually tells us that jealousy and selfish ambition, he says, are earthly and unspiritual. Oh, we might say that. Well, that's just earthly behavior. Unspiritual? I could see that's unspiritual behavior. And he says, demonic. Jealousy and selfish ambition is demonic. Some impulse or power behind it. It's driving it and sending it forward. It's produced by Satan himself. It's invaded our lives and it's come upon our lives. And you see here in the Bible, sin is something more than a part of a faulty process in man's evolution. 
something more than just a failure for proper social development. I'm going to give you a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's rather extensive. I want you to listen to it. Jones says this, Sin is something which is outside of man, something which can exist and which did exist apart from man. It is something which has entered human nature from without. Just a moment here. I'll stop the quote. When you think of it that way, those sin is woven into our nature and it's made itself a part of our lives. It's not simply a natural force. When we confront sin, we're addressing something more than our own impulses and even the impulse of our own fleshiness, which is saying a lot because my fleshiness is pretty potent. It's pretty powerful, but it's even more than that. It's more than just fleshy impulses. When we confront sin and we deal with sin in our life, we're contending with a force or a principle that is expressed not only by the power of our flesh, but is driven by the power of hell itself. These impulses are something that are put forward and have the force of the evil one behind them. Let's go back to this quote here. Sin is something which is outside of man, something which can exist and did exist apart from man. It is something which has entered human nature from without. We are aware of a power other than ourselves acting upon us and influencing us. It is not only a power or principle that is independent of men, but it is a mighty power, a terrible power. It has fiendish quality and malignity, which is truly terrifying. Furthermore, it is a power that has entered into the life of man and which affects us profoundly and actively. It does not belong to the order of vestigial remains. That means it's not a part of our evolving animal natures. It does not merely affect one part of man and his nature. It is so deep-seated and so much a part of us that the entire man is affected, the intellect, the desires, and therefore the will. Indeed, it constitutes such a terrible problem that God alone in Christ can deal with it. That's how powerful sin is. It's not answered by finding ways to assist us in the natural process of managing our instincts. It's not answered by providing some way to educate us and provide us with an educated response. All we'll get with all that education is just more educated sinners. It's not a matter of just learning impulse control, and it's not a matter of simply intellectually analyzing it and finding the answers by building a social strategy for it. No. Sin is a power greater than the power of one individual, and it's a power greater than the kind power of all society the whole of society. Sin is a force that is so great and yet so intertwined in our lives in the life and the society of human beings that it can only be addressed by the greatest power of all, by the power of God. It can only be overcome when we yield to a Savior who has come and is greater than the force of sin itself. A Savior who can confront sin and can even take all sin upon himself and extinguish it and deliver us from it. And that's what our Savior Jesus Christ has done. For too long, we've thought that we just need a better education. We just need to give people some therapeutic direction to overcome their sin, and this will be the final answer for them. Or we've thought if we just change the environment, we've even had the idea now that sin is really the result of all the classes in the world. If we can just create some strategy, some utopian experiment where we're all in one class and we create this unanimity of all people that everything will be better and all you'll do is take sin out of the classes and you'll just let sin express itself throughout the masses. Don't change anything. Don't deal with the issue. Sin can't be stopped, you say, by this education. It can't be 
stopped by mere social constructions. It's too powerful. It will not stop its damaging flow apart from us yielding to and finding a power mightier than itself. I was thinking about this some time ago. I was talking to somebody who was asking me what wisdom I should give them to speak to an individual who was steeped in a certain addiction. I said, well, it's important that this individual wants to be rescued out of that addiction and this situation that is just constantly raising up sin in their life, but it's also important they know that the only answer for their addiction and the power of that addiction in their life is something more powerful than that addiction. And this is so powerful and it's so intertwined in his life that there's only one thing that's more powerful than it. It's God himself. You're going to have to start with him and yield before him and let him pour into them his life and his power and they're going to have to yield to him and they're going to confess this to him. It's not in themselves and it's not in their strategies. God, turning to you, I'm yielding myself to you, I'm seeking a rescue from you. Now, this is what we're talking about when we talk about sin. And in the passage we're looking at, Paul is giving us, in a sense, a picture of what sin does when it's not met by that power. Now you've got your Bibles in front of you. You're looking at Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. Paul is giving us this picture of the flow of sin throughout society. And where does it sin wants to take us? The first thing we have to say again, we've said something about sin, that it's this powerful force that has introduced itself or come into the society of men from outside of the society of men. It's, it has behind it this power, this energizing power of Satan himself. But the first thing we have to come to and recognize here is that sin is deliberate and defiant. Sin is deliberate and defiant. It's something that we come to by a definite act of our wills. I know as a child, my plea was always, I didn't mean to. You know, it wasn't my fault. But the fact is that much of the time, I meant something. I was treading awfully close to not meaning it and meaning it at the same time. And I was just trying to find something to fall back upon just in case I got caught. But I meant to do it. I meant to do it. Sin is something that comes by a definite act of our wills. We choose our sins. So one of the evidences that we choose our sin that's given here is because we suppress whatever might restrain us from the pursuit of our sin. <laughs> we suppress, it says in verse 18, the truth in unrighteousness. We suppress those things that would keep us and hold us back from being able to pursue our sins, which tells us that we're coming to it by a deliberate and defiant act. We come to the sin, then you see, not through just harsh environments that we've experienced. We've come not because we've been overwhelmed by animal impulses. We've come, as we see here, because we choose to reject the work of God and the presence of God in our lives so that we can pursue our sins. That's what it means to suppress the truth and the righteousness. If you want to kind of know what this is like, you've probably driven in your car before where you're listening to the radio and some commentator comes on and he's sharing some information that you don't agree with. He's saying something that takes and is projecting out some political conclusion that maybe you don't agree with or some solution for your life that you think is nonsense and you don't like what he's saying, you don't like what he's exposing or maybe you're just listening to the news and the news is is reporting information that you don't want to hear. You don't like hearing that news. And so it annoys you and you turn the radio off. You just don't want to listen to it. That's what people do with God. That's what people do with the truth. God speaks to them and God communicates his truth and he makes his presence known and it's not taking them where they want to go and it's not leading them to the conclusions they want to make and what they want to be free to do and they just turn it off or turn the channel. 
They don't want to hear it. Listen to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 21a. And here's what Paul is saying. God is, and God has given a witness of himself to all human beings. Uh, one of the things that a human can do is a human can conceal himself in some way. You might know something about me, but you don't know everything about me. I don't tell you everything about me. My wife knows almost everything about me. We can hide ourselves in certain ways. We choose to do that. All of you do that with individuals. There are some that know you better and some that know you worse. And part of it is it's what you've revealed of yourself to them and what they know about yourself. And that's just a part of the right that we have as human beings. We can hide ourselves. And God who made us has the same right. And God hides himself. And he discloses himself. But God also reveals himself. And this passage tells us that God has chosen to make himself known to us. This is not something you come to by your own natural ability. God opens your eyes to see and recognize what he is doing. The invisible God opens our eyes to see and recognize what he is doing and to make himself known. And so there is a revelation of God here. It's called general revelation. It's what God makes known throughout all creation. But this is something God has made known. It's not your own conclusion. This is not a result of your natural theology where you use your powers of observation and your rational capacities and you came up to these conclusions all by yourself. This passage is letting us know, no, God is revealing these things. He's making these things known. Let's look at it. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Let me read to you 18, 19, 20, 21a. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them or it is evident in them for God has shown it to them for since the creation of the world his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things which are made even his eternal power and Godhead which we might say is instead of Godhead we might say his divinity that he is the divine power so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful. Now we can look at that passage and we can say, well, here is a, oftentimes when you look at people taking this passage, they then go off into an excursion of apologetics. They go into the cosmological argument, they go into the intelligent design argument, and they, they share with you all kinds of scientific facts to prove the reality of God. And that's nice and it's helpful, but it's not necessary. This passage says, God's already doing that. God has already made himself known. That the primary conclusion that men make when they're looking at the universe, because God's spirit is speaking to them, is that there's a God who made all this. What this passage is telling us is that there is a divine commentator behind all that you see in life and all that you see in creation, and it's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is commenting on all that's around you, and what the Holy Spirit is saying is, God made this. And God is all-powerful. And as you look at it, he's beginning to share with you attributes of God that are expressed in his creation. His wisdom and his care and his providence and his goodness and his justice and his love and all these things come through. And yes, justice too. We know that because as man looks at these things and studies these things, the spirit even begins to witness in his heart that there is an accounting that he has to give for his own life. We'll see that in verse 32. In fact, I'll go to it again, but look at verse 32 for a moment. Speaking of men who turn their face away from God and turn their face away from the witness of God, it says here, who knowing the judgment of God, 
that they which commit such things are worthy of death not only do the same, but have pleasure in those who do them. Now, he's speaking of those in the Roman society. And he says, they know the judgment of God. There's a conclusion they have drawn from what they see in all creation. There's an all-powerful divine God who has made this world and who holds us to account. Yet they go on in their sin. But here's the idea. God is speaking. God is communicating. God's Spirit is impressing us. And, and the Spirit of God who impresses us and gives us commentary also impresses us with the proper response we're to make to what we're seeing. That Spirit tells us that we should worship and praise this invisible God. That Spirit tells us that we should give thanks to that God for His providences that sustain us and benefit our lives. But individuals restrain themselves from that praise. They restrain themselves from giving that thanks. And the reason is because if they were to give that praise and they were to give that thanks, they'd have to orientate themselves to God. They'd have to turn their face towards God. And if they turned their face towards God, they wouldn't be free to pursue their own selfish desires and their own sin. And so they deliberately push these things aside. They suppress the impulse of praise and thanksgiving. And to excuse this deliberative and defiant turn from God, they make rationalizations about why they do that, that lead them into darkness and demented thoughts. They slowly strip their lives of all things that are tender and true in this way to their own rational reasoning as they turn away from God and have to explain them and justify themselves. They turn themselves instead into futility and meaninglessness. Look at verses 21 through 23. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful. You see that? That was where the Spirit was leading them. They knew that there was a Creator who made all those things, and the Spirit was prompting them as He interpreted what they were seeing and understanding, explaining it to their souls. They knew there was a God they were to glorify or live for or give praise to, and they knew there was a God they were to be thankful to. But although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful. They became futile in their thoughts, and the foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. This happens because humans are straining against the witness of the Holy Spirit to them throughout all creation. And the Holy Spirit is speaking into them and He's guiding them. That impact is that He begins to stir their consciences towards God. And get this then. Man knows there's a God. And he knows that this God is to be worshipped. And he knows that this God is to be enjoyed. And he has the witness of the Spirit whispering to him these truths of God's very nature and God's attributes. But he suppresses and ignores this divine commentary that's taking place in his soul and he replaces these truths that the spirit dictates to his heart with his own inventions with his own idols and his idol making starts look how it says here it starts with a projection of himself it starts with an image of his own self particularly himself as he is now initially being informed by God's own presence in his life even though he turns away and so the first thing he does is he makes an idol of himself of a corrupt man but man but the longer he turns away from God and the longer he refuses God, over time these idols begin to project out the beastliness of life without God. And so the idols degenerate as well. Now they become not an image of man who was made in the image of God, but now they turn the image of birds and four-footed animals 
and creeping things. The further you go from God into self-worship and the idols that accommodate your own sin, the more monstrous the images of those idols become. And still man is deliberate and still man is defiant of what God is making known to him. And so we see that in verse 32 again. God is making known to him all these truths. And God ultimately is dialing that truth down to the fact that man has to give an account before God and that God has a righteous way for man. It says, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also prove of those who practice them. What's being told here? The Spirit of God is bringing a commentary of truth and revelation of God in creation to every person. And in light of that knowledge of God the Creator, the Spirit of God is in the presence of God. He's unveiling the attributes of God. And as he does, he begins to unveil in that light a sense and awareness of people's sin. And he also begins in that light, begins to unveil to them a sense and an understanding of the righteous way they should live. And he also is making known in light of that sense of their own sin and the righteous way they should live of judgment. We talk about this all the time. That's John 16 verses 8 through 11. That the Spirit convicts people of sin and righteousness and judgment. That's where he's leading us. That's where he's doing universally in every place. And it's rooted in this witness, this general testimony that comes to man throughout all of creation. It comes down to their heart and their soul. and It's what man suppresses. And as man begins to suppress that and continues to suppress that, this defiant, determined sin will sweep that person to a point at which they not only pursue the sin, but they enjoy others who are doing the same thing, even though they know it will be judged. Even though they know it will be judged. That's the bottom line of the defiant nature of sin. You vicariously thrill yourself with what others are doing that you yourselves may be doing, or what you might not at the moment have the opportunity or courage to do. That's the seamy side of sin. It's the worst act. You know, it's, it's almost worse than doing it. It's taking pleasure in those who did. The grief of it is where sin is taking our world and where sin is taking our society. That's the second thing I want to say here. Sin is debasing. It leads people into a downward and degrading spiral. Look at verses 24 and 25. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Let me just say this, that human beings are made in the image of God. And this is an elevating and uplifting truth. I'm made in the image of God. I might be a broken image. I might be a, a fallen statue of the glory of the divine, but I'm a, a broken image of God walking in the garden. What an uplifting truth. But when you make yourself a God, when you put yourself at the center of the world and your own desires and your own interests, the degradation has just begun. And you begin to debase yourself by worshiping yourself. Shirley MacLaine wrote a book years ago called Out on the Limb. It was a story of her as a movie star for you young people who don't know who Shirley MacLaine was. She was an old movie star. Wrote a, a story of her journey to self-discovery, and they made a movie about it as well. And the penultimate discovery that she makes in this journey is she comes to this grand conclusion, which she proclaims on a seashore towards the end of the book, and it's that she's God. There is at the shore along this image of her in this story in which she's standing on the shore as the sun is setting and she repeats over and over again, I am God, I am God, I am God. 
What a pathetic and debasing reality. Listen, if humans are simply made in the image of humans, take a look around. How debasing, how awful. But if we're made in the image of the invisible, all-powerful God, the holy, good, loving, pure God of truth, God of life, God of goodness, how uplifting is that? How wonderful is that? What an indication of what our potential is. Sin drives us from God, and so it drives us from the nobility of our purpose and our making and the true beauty of the natures as God had created them and intended them. And sin leads us increasingly into a place where we're distorted, where in the image that's made in us is distorted, and we sink into a, a monstrosity, a defacement of the divine. Instead of being broken and marred image of the divine God that we begin to see and look at and God begins to restore in us a sense of the honor that belongs to us. We become a caricature of the demonic. Sin is debasing this way. Ultimately, sin given its course, and this is the third point here, brings upon a sinner and the sinner a degeneration that completely deforms them. It's just they become repugnant. They become repugnant. That's what you see in verses 24 through 32. Three times in these verses, by the way, we're told that God gives that determined, defiant sinner over to their sin. He says he gives them up, he gives them up, he gives them up. And as God gives them up, you just see them sinking further and further and further into their own degradation, into this defacement, into this degeneration, and this deformity. And God has placed restraints around all of us by his Holy Spirit. He restrains us by our conscience. He restrains us by this awareness of himself. He restrains us by the society he brings around us. But as all these things begin to break down and, and sin begins to take us into its way of complete defacement of the image of God in us, we're just unleashed into a deformity of sin that we can hardly even recognize. We're debased in every single way. And interestingly enough, when you read this and you understand something, you understand that one of the great final expressions of God's judgment is that he takes man who is constantly pushing God away, constantly pushing God away, and God lets him have his way. God gives in to that desire. God lets man push himself away from his presence. And he leaves man to those things. And sin has its way with him. As a result, man begins to delight in what he calls his own self-expression, which is just to indulge in unrestrained carnality. And he's given up the vile passions. That's what we read about in this passage. There's the burning with unnatural lust. Uh, he's debased in his morality. He's debased in his thinking. He's demented is the idea in his thinking. He's filled with unrighteousness and sexual immorality, it says, and wickedness and covetousness and maliciousness. And he's full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and evil-mindedness. And he becomes a whisperer and a backbiter and a hater of God and violent and proud in it and boasters, and inventors of evil things. He, he doesn't just do what's wrong. He keeps coming up with new ways to do what's wrong. Disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. That's it. That's the picture. And then he takes pleasure in those who do the very things that he knows God will one day judge. What a ghastly, awful picture. This is the disgusting end of sin. It ultimately renders us beyond blushing, people dulled beyond shame. Paul said in Ephesians that it's a sin to even speak of those things which are done in secret. If that's true, ooh, 
What a shame. What a shame enters into the homes of people on a daily basis in our own society. It's a picture of a society that has been swallowed up by the malevolent power of sin and has deliberately allowed itself to be debased in disgusting, the disgusting sewage of sin. What's the answer for all of that? What's the answer for all of that? Just do the little ones. Just get a little education. Just find somebody to help you manage the big ones you're struggling with. Just a little bit of accountability. What's the answer to all that? The answer is someone who is more powerful than the fierce power of sin. And it's taking your life and giving it in complete surrender to him. Complete surrender to him. If this is where sin is wanting to take you in this life, where do you think it will take you at the end of this life? Where do you think it will plunge you? If this is where it's going to plunge you in the here and now, where will it plunge you in the hereafter? Unless you find somebody who can stand its way and defeat it and overcome it and give you victory from it and can wash you from each stain. This is the point of the message today. You look at the forces that are shaping this world and you tell me that the world doesn't need Jesus. You look at the forces that are constantly surrounding your own life interjecting it in your very soul and your very attitude and your very mindset at times and you tell me that you don't need Jesus. Say it and it will stick in your throat. You can't honestly evaluate the condition of your life and the life around you and say that there's any hope for yourself apart from Christ and his power and his might to deliver us. We need a power more powerful than the power of sin and there is only one. There's only one. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me, and he makes this tremendous exclusive statement. He's not saying it because he's, he's just disparaging all the other ideas that people have. He's just saying, I am the only answer. I'm not being exclusivistic here. Here's the reality. I am the only answer against the power you're facing and the destruction that you're facing. I'm the only answer. We need a power that is capable of disentangling our lives from the entanglements of sin. We need Jesus. So sin begins with a willful act of suppression, a turning away from God, an unwillingness to let God be God, and sin is answered by a turn back to God, a look to Him, confession before Him, seeing ourselves in His presence, recognizing our own sin and where it's brought us, and then turning to the one that God has offered to us in solution for our sins, the Savior who has died for our sins and who lives now to pour into us His perfect righteousness. Say as a conclusion, if you listen to different sermons on, he gave them over, he gave them over. You, gave, you can YouTube it. You can go and look up uh, commentaries on this. Everybody will say, well, this is a picture of the day and age we're in. And they, there's no hope for us. God has given us over. It's just a picture of God's ultimate and final judgment in our society and individuals. And I disagree. I believe that every judgment of God is corrective until the last one. Every judgment of God is corrective until the last one. And God will leave you to descend into your sin. And he'll leave you alone as you pursue your sin. In order to awaken you to your sin. He'll let you confront the atrocity of your evil. It's a gracious way of calling you back into his goodness. And his life and his forgiveness. That's what God's doing here. We see all these things and we say, oh, God is judging our nation. Yes, he is. God has turned himself away from a nation. There's no hope for us. No. 
God's turned us into our own designs and our own desires as an, in an effort, a gracious, loving effort to awaken us to the awfulness of sin and its power and its malignancy so we could turn back to the healer, the one who can heal our land and heal our lives. And there's still hope because there's still God. There's still Him. The church needs to turn into Him every single day. Celebrate Him. It is the answer we need, the answer that the world needs. Let's bow our heads. God, we come before your word. It's so powerful, it's so potent. It's not meant to be perused casually. It's not meant to be read in order to simply underscore our own opinions and ideas. Your word comes from your lips, from your mouth, by the breath of the Holy Spirit upon those that he was moving upon sovereignly to give us exactly what you wanted us to see and wanted us to know. And the word has come to reveal to us more perfectly and fully yourself and your salvation. To reveal to us a way of grace and a way of mercy. To prepare us for good news. When we read this passage and we consider it, we must understand that Paul is writing it to prepare us for good news. God, make us people of the good news, able to proclaim it to others even in the darkest hour. We thank you, dear God, that good news is ours. We see apart from you, dear Jesus, the darkness of this world creeping into our own hearts. You are the answer. Turn us back to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.